The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on Confessions of a Shopaholic. My partner today is Willa Paskin. Hi, Willa. Hi. Who is a freelance writer and who saw the movie the same time as me. She's also just written a, a piece on Confessions of a Shopaholic and other films that will appear in the Daily Beast later this week. So I thought she would be a good a good match for this for this movie, although we've never met before today. So hi, Willa. Hi. <laughs> So, first of all, let's do a plot summary for those who haven't read the best-selling books that this is based on, and just general kind of reactions to the movie. Um, walking out, were you glad you saw it? Um, I was. I actually, so much of the pre-buzz about this movie has been that it's like just an abomination given the financial climate and that it's just celebration of shopping. But I thought that it was, while sort of ridiculous in, in many ways, a little bit more um, on point about kind of the troubles that everyone's facing collectively as Americans now than I was expecting it to be. Well, is that sort of the big question about the movie? this movie? Is it is it horrible timing or is it kind of perfect timing in a way, right? I mean, it's this little sort of very fluffy morality tale about one individual consumer's debt. And, you know, it happens to land in theaters at the moment that the whole banking system is basically falling apart. So you could look at it as kind of grotesque and obscene, which is, I think, how the Village Voice critic read the movie, you know, that it's just this insult to all these people that are losing homes and jobs. Or you can read it as an allegory, which doesn't make it any better of a movie, but, you know, at least makes it sort of interesting to talk about. And I want to do that in a minute. But first, let's just quickly summarize what happens in the movie. So sure, this this character, Rebecca Bloomwood, who's a journalist, um, loses her job and, and longs to be a fashion writer. And so she ends up not being a fashion writer, but getting a job at Successful Savings Magazine, where she um, writes about her obsession with shopping and clothes, but in monetary terms, becomes a huge success. Meanwhile, you know, she's $16,000 in debt and being stalked by a debt collector. The movie unfolds in probably all the ways that you would expect in terms of her lovely little boss and um, her increasing fame and the debt collector, you know, coming to collect in ends in sort of typical romantic comedy fashion. Well, and don't forget, since this is a spoiler special, we don't have to keep any secrets from the audience. And we can actually say, as if it wasn't obvious from the fact it's a romantic comedy, that she falls in love with her boss at Successful Savings, who's played by Hugh, Hugh Dancy, Dancy. The very right? adorable Hugh Dancy. Do you find Hugh Dancy very adorable? I think he's very cute. I mean, he's. I think he's sort of like a cardboard. They's not much there, but I think he's he's a. He's just such guy. a generic type in terms of his appearance. I actually thought he carried off the role pretty well, but but he's so unmemorable. He looks so much like so many other handsome British leading men that I had to keep reminding myself, who is this guy again? Oh, we also forgot to mention that Isla Fisher, Sasha Baron Cohen's fiance, is you know the main character and plays Rebecca Bloomwood. All right, so let's 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 move to talking a little bit about um about the movies. Allegory. I mean, to me, one of the big problems with getting into this movie, both as an allegory for debt and the nation's debt and just as a love story, was that I found the main character really, really unlikable. It's not Isla Fisher's fault. She's she's a funny person. She's not without talent. But it seemed to have this problem of never getting to the bottom of how disgusting it actually is to be a shopaholic in the way that she is in the movie. I mean, what was interesting is it almost seemed as if she had a disease, like actually, like she was completely insane and mentally ill. But at the same time, they kind of didn't explore the fact that she was perhaps mentally ill, like literally couldn't stop shopping in sort of an addicted way. But then they sort of played it for laughs and that like it wasn't actually upsetting and serious. And so there was just like, kind of, you know, you're supposed to like her because she's Isla Fisher and she's adorable. But at the same time, they had her do a series of really unhinged things that I think you weren't supposed to think 
Okay, I can jump in with a couple yeah. of the things that she did that I just found just plain unpleasant. Like, it would take so long for someone to win my oh. good graces back after doing these things to me. Like, her editor, who she later falls in love with, but at the beginning of the movie, is her boss, right? He's her boss at a brand new job that she talked her way into in a completely unlikely scene where, you know, she comes in completely unprepared and utterly clueless about the world of finance and um, and not even a particularly good liar or faker and somehow charms her way into the job. But whatever, you know, that's sort of part <laughs> of the convention. Then she has the job and... He sort of takes her under his wing and starts taking her around to conferences on economics and sort of teaching her the ropes, basically, being this mentor. And at one point, assigns her a piece and says, send me, I mean, as a writer, and as and a freelance writer yourself, I'm sure you identify, he says, send me a draft by 3 p.m. And she blows her down. Perfectly line. reasonable. And instead, she wanders by a sample sale and goes on this huge shopping spree. And there's one of the most, I think, misogynistic scenes in the movie where, you know, there's just cat fights over Gucci boots <laughs> and things like that. And the whole time, I'm just thinking, like, her editor is going to be furious. And I was sort of satisfied with that dramatic um, suspense there because I thought, wow, she's going to get home and there's going to be a real comeuppance that she she fucked up this deadline so badly. And she gets home, turns in the piece late, and he gushes over it and compliments her. And, exactly. And, the, the and there's, there's an early scene on her way to that job interview where she is late to the, to a job interview she thinks at a fashion magazine that she wants more than anything in the world and she decides to be late so she can buy a scarf which is like, at the time, I was like, you are kidding. Like You care about this so much and you're you're not going to the job interview. I mean, it's as if she literally... the didn't seem to understand. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, point. she just really, like, it's the kind of behavior you're like, that's not... I mean, you're sort of playing this for laughs, but that seems sort of dangerous. I mean, in the way that I, I thought that the movie kind of ended up meaning something more than it should have because it was actually about... It sort of did a decent job of portraying someone who's literally addicted to something, like cannot stop. And they sort of played it for laughs. I mean, she goes to shopaholics meetings. And, you know, the way they talk about shopping is never in negative terms at all. It's always like this very beautiful, fun experience. But it's also ruining her life in a, in a legitimate way that I don't think they ever kind of figure out. Yeah, the movie is not really able to not have it both ways because the movie itself is so in love with, you know, shopping and color and fashion and I mean we both thought the clothes were horrible but we'll get to that in a minute Um, there was one more point I wanted to make about something she did that was just icky oh yeah I remember what it was it was when she um she well through a series of coincidences that's too boring to explain here she ends up having to choose between the bridesmaid's dress that she would wear at her best friend and roommate's wedding sort of construed in the film as an ugly dress although it's no looks exactly the same as everything else and a dress that she has picked out for a big career moment, a, a TV interview she's going to have. So, you know, there's this very overdetermined choice between, like, the friendship dress and the career dress, only one of which she can keep. And she decides to keep the career dress. The career dress and a homeless lady ends up walking down the street wearing the, the bridesmaid's this dress. This homeless lady who's been lurking for no explicable reason singing songs. It's so ridiculous right? when you start describing the plot that I'm just <laughs> embarrassed to be even talking about it. But then the best friend sees this homeless lady and realizes that she's been betrayed. And within the context of the movie, it's actually, you know, pretty terrible, the thing that she did to her, to her this best is, friend. This is her bottom moment, actually. This is when she hits bottom with shopping. It's when she realizes that. But isn't she too easily forgiven for that moment, too? I mean, the moralist in me just wanted to see a little bit more of a comeuppance for this character. Not that she can't win out and have a happy ending. It's her romantic comedy. But, you know, it just seemed like there needed to be a little bit more of a dues paid. Well, I thought that the scene where she actually, where the debt collector, the debt collector shows up at, uh, who she's been avoiding the entire movie, shows up at the TV show she's filming and and pretends to be in the audience and starts to basically harangue her while she's on national television about all of her crazy lies about how she's been avoiding debt and it's sort of mortifying. And that scene I found to be like, Actually, a little bit mortifying. Totally what she deserves, but mortifying. But then everything after that, there was, like, no consequences. You know, she had a big sale. She sell- she gets all the money back for her dress. The guy that she's in love with who's really mad at her for lying totally forgives her. And then, even more, she has no 
professional consequences because she's hired by the magazine she's always actually wanted to work for, although she ends up turning down the job because, you know, she has developed some, some kind of consciousness about shopping at that point. But, I mean, there's there's no downside to her being totally embarrassed and mortified and yeah, lying. Now that you point out how easy it is for her to get out of all the scrapes that she spends the movie getting herself into, it's sort of like, I mean, if this were an allegory for the U.S. banking industry, it's like they should be so lucky, <laughs> right? Wall sad. Street Wall Street would have it would have it made if they could get off as easily as this woman gets off at but the it, end of the it's movie. It's sort of interesting because there's a scene early in the movie that's just a screwball scene where she's trying to get a letter that she sent to an editor that's super embarrassing. She's trying to get it back before the editor can read it. And she's standing in a, in a stack of clothes sort of like trying to steal a letter without having anyone see her while actually pretending to be the arms of the clothes. That's actually very charming and funny and sort of, and why Isla Fisher is, I expect better things from her in the future. But in that scene, you know, in most movies, she wouldn't get the letter. I mean, this is in like the 20th minute of the movie, you know, that would be a plot point is that this, she sent this terrible thing to an editor. But of course, no, she gets the letter back because nothing bad ever actually happens to her at that point or at any future point. Yeah, it's strange. It's, it, it actually really does remind me of, you know, she is Wall Street because she just is sort of consequence free. She manages to skate through doing all these pretty reprehensible things. We haven't even mentioned some of the lies that she tells to the boss after he becomes her boyfriend. And this is one of those romantic comedies where at the end you say, I give that relationship two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, It's one of the most sort of unconvincing and insincere happy endings of a romantic comedy I've seen in a while. I mean, speaking of the of the banking thing is there's that also they they you know they they added some stuff, they reshot some of the some of the film after the crisis had sort of set in and there was a couple scenes that I thought in particular seemed like they'd been added in and one of them was when she's first be, her boss takes her under her wing, his wing and basically brings her to a conference and has her ask a banker, "Why are you getting a 24 million dollar bonus when your company lost 8% last year?" And, like, it actually doesn't really have any bearing on the plot, but it's sort of like this moment where they're kind of looking out at the audience and being like, we're not, we didn't film this movie a year ago. Like, we just, we I were didn't realize that now. there had been scenes that were shot and, and, and put in later. I'm surprised in that case that there wasn't a little bit more of an effort made to to create a background portrait of an economy that wasn't a boom economy, because the whole movie proceeds on the notion that we're still in a boom econ- economy, including a publishing boom economy, <laughs> which was not the case for well before, you know, right. the time that the severe financial crisis kind of started to hit last fall. I mean, magazines were already having a very hard time. Right. And there's some really ridiculous scenes at the end of this movie. I, I'm sure you found them equally absurd as someone who works in, in publishing in New York, where magazines are created at the drop of a hat, where John Lithgow is this publishing magnate is just, just sort start of saying, a new like, magazine. here's an idea. Let's start a magazine that's all about the writer's voice and suddenly he's yeah. signing a or, or Hugh Dancy's original speech about his magazine is like we don't give the people what we want we give them what we need we're not going to be the people magazine of you know money publishing and you're like people magazine does pretty well I think almost every magazine in the land right now is not turning their nose up at at the people's business model and giving us all our Wheaties. Yeah, I don't think that the magazines of this of this movie, Successful Savings <laughs> magazine and Alette Fashion magazine, would would be long for the world if they were oh. if they were here right now. Okay, let's take a break for a moment to talk about our new sponsor on this spoiler special podcast, Audible.com, which is a purveyor of hearable books on the internet. Audible offers more than 50,000 audiobooks, and uh, you can download them onto listening devices, onto your computer, etc. And uh, the deal that they've made with Slate is as follows. If you sign up for a new One Book a Month membership through Slate, through the URL for the spoiler special on on the Slate homepage, uh, it'll do two things. It'll get you a free audiobook, which you can keep whether or not you remain a member, and it will count as a much-appreciated vote of support for this podcast. The URL you should go to if you're interested in checking this out is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. 
And here's a suggestion, as long as we're at it for a book you might want to use as your free book. Since Confessions of a Shopaholic is such an excruciating movie, I don't want to slag the book with the same brush, but the Sophie Kinsella novel that this is based on is a huge British bestseller. It's sort of talked about as like a B-level Bridget Jones diary. So I'm going to go highbrow, and I'm going to say, if you're interested in a good book on a similar theme that is actually incredibly juicy reading and a total page-turner, check out Edith Wharton's House of Mirth, another book about a, uh, a young woman who gets in over her head with debt and with a lot of negative, far more negative consequences than Isla Fisher has to face in this movie. You can find House of Mirth on Audible, and it's it's read by a wonderful British actress named Eleanor Braun. There's several different um, readers, actually, but that's the one that our, our British producer here recommends. That address, again, is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Okay, let's get back to our spoiling. Um, We had one more important uh, issue to cover, which is the fashion. This movie is all about clothes, obviously. And the scene after scene, it really is a very fashion-centric movie. I would say more so than Sex and the City, in a way, in the sense that it has fewer other things to do besides watch Isla Fisher go shopping, fewer subplots, etc. So it it opens on a shopping scene, uh, actually a flashback shopping scene of her when she was a little girl, and flash-forwards to shopping scenes, and many, many key moments revolve around particular outfits and scarves and dresses and so forth. And yet, the clothes are absolutely hideous. Hideous. The worst. It's actually really hard. Patricia Field, who did Sex and the City movie, picked the clothes for this movie, and it's really... You wonder if, because of her reputation, no one was like, these are actually so ugly and you should let them wear something else, if everyone just let her go totally crazy, or if she was going for some sort of particular over-accessorized, clashing color kind of look. Because she lit- in this movie, Rebecca wears any number of short, furry coats and orange and purples and patterns and hideously large jewelry. I mean, each outfit has like seven parts. It's really... It always really strikes me that the fabrics look very cheap in this movie. I mean, it's, every- it's all about how she's overspending and so forth. But at least, you know, you might think that the Sex and the City clothes in the in the movie and the, the show, which Patricia Field also did are kind of over the top, but they look expensive, right? And these clothes look somehow cheap. And I wondered if that might not be deliberate on Patricia Field's part, that she's trying to get across something that's smarter than the movie ever actually tries to get across, which is like, this is all crap. You know, she's just <laughs> stockpiling garbage in her house and, and sort of believing that it's this this beautiful transcendent thing that's no, changing and, her life. And it's really interesting also because even when she's telling us brand names, like this is a Gucci purse, it's like the ugliest Gucci purse you've ever seen. Everything is sort of in insane colors. Um, I think she was kind of trying to communicate maybe a little trashiness or sort of like a Forever 21 look, you know, someone who spends an enormous amount, who has no real taste, right? I mean, it, seeing what Rebecca's wearing, you don't think that she has any taste at all. And then there's a scene in the movie where, you know, the head of the French of the head of the fashion, the French woman who's in charge of Alette, the fashion magazine. Who I should add is wonderfully played by Kristen Scott Thomas <laughs> in a tiny little role, but she looks fantastic. She does. And she sounds is- utterly French. I guess she's lived in France yeah. for a long time. but She's like slumming it in this movie. There's a couple actors that are slumming in this movie. But um, they pick out clothes together and she picks up something that actually are like, please wear that. That doesn't look that terrible. And of course... Rebecca's like all set to pick out her own outfit, which which granted the one she picks is maybe the least terrible one she wears in the entire movie. But then she over accessorizes per usual. Now that we talk about it, though, I do sort of start to think, I mean, it is sort of funny that a clo- the movie all about clothes has ugly clothes, but it seems like they are deliberate choices on Patricia Field's part. And at the very least, it gives you something fun to look at. You know, she never doesn't look sort of amazingly eye poppingly weird and, and funny. My one the one reason I think that there might be a little less conch- like there might not be so on purpose is that. In the poster, which you'd think would be trying to sell the movie, she's wearing the worst outfit in the world. I mean, she's wearing like a puffy orange coat and some pink. I mean, it's terrible. Um, And I thought it was terrible the whole time that I saw it. And you'd think like, at least in the poster, they'd be trying to sell the movie as sort of 
fashion forward in a sort of appealing way as opposed to a hideous one. I wonder, I mean, if this movie had come out in more boom times, I wonder if it might not have sort of sparked a mini fashion craze the way that um, Legally Blonde, the Legally Blonde movies sort of gave rise to this L style for a while. I mean, it would certainly be A style, right? <laughs> if H&M suddenly started carrying the, the Rebecca Bloomwood line yeah. of bright fuchsia colored felt. High pattern. Like... Very strange accessories, like things that appear to be folded felt pinned onto yeah. the side of her jacket the si- about the size of like a, a eight by ten piece of paper for no apparent reason brightly colored tiny furry jackets worn for no i mean it to very ill effect but as long as we're spoiling one last thing about clothes and then then we'll wrap up but the, the movie concludes with hugh dancy finding her and making up with her even though she's treated him like utter crap in a hundred <laughs> ways that we won't go into and part of his gesture of making up with her is that he has bought at auction the green scarf that sort of um, became her signature piece and, and her whole column was, was called the, the girl with the green scarf so it's become sort of like the Rebecca Bloomwood item of clothing and so he buys it at auction secretly through a, a proxy bidder through two proxy bidders and, and gives it right exactly he's <laughs> buying with himself for it for any price and he gives it back to her and it seemed like that was a very very strange message for the end of the movie to me that she had essentially finally gotten over her shopping addiction and decided that material things were were not where it was at. And then he comes running up to her with a green scarf and says, this is the essence of you. You know, the movie goes on and on about sort of how clothes make the person, basically, and then sort of vaguely makes a gesture at disproving that idea, you know, for sort of a moral... And and then just slaps it right back on again with a green scarf gift at the end, didn't you find? No, I think that's exactly right. And also, I mean, there's just something sort of weird, like he bought her back at the end, you know, which is maybe not the best message to be sending. I mean, but I think I think that also I think you're correct about about they spend a lot of time with the parents, for example, like talking about how John Goodman, who plays her father, is like, the only thing that defines me is you and your mother. You know, I'm going to sell my possessions to give you the money that you need to sort of get out of debt. And then, of course, at the end, it's really just about she is defined by this green scarf. It's like the thing that means that's who she is. But I think that's part of the movie sort of trying to have it both ways again, because it's like it can't decide if it really loves shopping and knows that debt is bad or if it thinks shopping might be bad. And debt is sort of just a corollary to that. Well, maybe that's why, against all odds, it might actually be a hit right now. Because if you want to judge Rebecca Bloomwood and go and sort of, you know, basically throw spitballs at her as if she were one of the Wall Street bankers who who screwed up your life, you can do that. And if you just want to sort of fantastically identify with her and imagine yourself back in the world where you could run up $16,000 in credit card debt, you can do that, too. All right. Well, thank you very much, Willa, for coming in for this Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. Thanks for having me. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.